Chapter Four of Mary Marston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Srigley, Charlottesville, Virginia, USA. Mary Marston by George MacDonald. Chapter Four. Godfrey Wardour. The property of which Thornwick once formed a part was then large and important, but it had, by not very slow degrees, generation following generation of unthrift, dwindled and shrunk and shriveled until at last it threatened to disappear from the family altogether, like a spark upon burnt paper. Then came one into possession who had some element of salvation in him. Godfrey's father not only held the poor remnant together, but, unable to add to it, improved it so greatly that at length in the midst of the large properties around it resembled the diamond that hearts a disk of inferior stones doubtless could he have used his wife's money he would have spent it on land but it was under trustees for herself and her children and indeed would not have gone far in the purchase of english soil considerably advanced in years before he thought of marrying he died while godfrey whom he intended bringing up to a profession was yet a child, and his widow, carrying out his intention, had educated the boy with a view to the law. Godfrey, however, had positively declined entering on studies special to a career he detested, nor was it difficult to reconcile his mother to the enforced change of idea when she found that his sole desire was to settle down with her and manage the two hundred acres his father had left him. He took his place in the county, therefore, as a yeoman farmer, none the less a gentleman by descent, character, and education. But while in genuine culture and refinement the superior of all the landed proprietors in the neighborhood, and knowing it, he was the superior of most of them in this also, that he counted it no derogation from the dignity he valued to put his hands upon occasion to any piece of work required about the place. His nature was too large, however, and its needs therefore too many, to allow of his spending his energies on the property, and he did not brood over such things as, so soon as they become cares, become despicable. How much time is wasted in what is called thought, but is merely care, an anxious idling over the fancied probabilities of result. Of this fault, I say, Godfrey was not guilty. More, however, I must confess, from healthful drawings and other directions than from philosophy or wisdom, he was a reader, not in the sense of a man who derives intensest pleasure from the absorption of intellectual pabulum, one not necessarily so superior as some imagine to the gourmet, or even the gourmand. In his reading, Godfrey nourished certain of the higher tendencies of his nature, read with a constant reference to his own views of life, and the confirmation, change, or enlargement of his theories of the same. But neither did he read, with the highest aim of all, the enlargement of reverence, obedience, and faith, for he had never turned his face full in the direction of infinite growth, the primal end of a man's being, who is that he may return to the Father, gathering his truth as he goes. Yet by the simple instincts of a soul, undebased by self-indulgence or low pursuits, he was drawn ever toward things lofty and good, and life went calmly on, bearing Godfrey Wardour toward middle age, unruffled either by anxiety 
or ambition. To the forecasting affection of a mother, the hour when she must yield the first place, both in her son's regards and in the house affairs, could not but have often presented itself in doubt and pain, perhaps dread. Only as year after year passed, and Godfrey revealed no tendency toward marriage, her anxiety changed sides, and she began to fear lest with Godfrey the ancient family should come to an end. As yet, however, finding no response to covert suggestion, she had not ventured to speak openly to him on the subject. All the time, I must add, she had never thought of Letty, either as thwarting or furthering her desires, for in truth she felt toward her as one on whom Godfrey could never condescend to look, save with the kindest suitable for one immeasurably below him. As to what might pass in Letty's mind, Mrs. Wardour had neither curiosity nor care, else she might possibly have been more considerate than to fall into the habit of talking to her in such swelling words of maternal pride that, even if she had not admired him of herself, Letty could hardly escape coming to regard her cousin Godfrey as the very first of men. It added force to the veneration of both mother and cousin, for it was nothing less than veneration in either that there was about Godfrey an air of the inexplicable, or at least the unknown, and therefore mysterious. This the elder woman, not without many a pang at her exclusion from his confidence, attributed, and correctly, to some passage in his life at the university. To the younger it appeared only as greatness self-veiled from the ordinary world. To such as she, could be vouchsafed only an occasional peep into the gulf of his knowledge, the grandeur of his intellect, and the imperturbability of his courage. The passage in Godfrey's life to which I have referred, as vaguely suspected by his mother, I need not present in more than merest outline. It belongs to my history only as a component part of the soil whence it springs, and as in some measure necessary to the understanding of Godfrey's character. In the last year of his college life he had formed an attachment, the precise nature of which I do not know. What I do know is that the bonds of it were rudely broken, and of the story nothing remained but disappointment and pain, doubt and distrust. Godfrey had most likely cherished an overweening notion of the relative value of the love he gave, but, being his, I am certain it was genuine. By that I mean a love with no small element of the everlasting in it. The woman who can cast such a love from her is not likely to meet with such another, but with this one I have nothing to do. It had been well if he had been left with only a wounded heart, but in that heart lay wounded pride. He hid it carefully, and the keener in consequence grew the sensitiveness, almost feminine, which no stranger could have suspected beneath the manner he wore. Under that bronzed countenance, with its firm-set mouth and powerful jaw, below that clear blue eye and that upright easy carriage, lay a faithful heart haunted by a sense of wrong. He who is not perfect in forgiveness must be haunted thus. He only is free, whose love for the human is so strong that he can pardon the individual sin. He alone can pray the prayer, Forgive us our trespasses, out of a full heart. Forgiveness is the only cure of wrong, and, hand in hand, 
with sense of injury, walks ever the weak sister demon, self-pity, so dear, so sweet to many, both of them, the children of Philautos, not of Agape. But there was no hate, no revenge in Godfrey, and I repeat, his weakness he kept concealed. It must have been in his eyes, but eyes are hard to read. For the rest, his was a strong poetic nature, a nature which half unconsciously turned ever toward the best, away from the mean judgments of common men, and with positive loathing from the ways of worldly women. Never was peace and danger between his mother and him, except when she chanced to make use of some evil maxim which she thought experience had taught her. And the look her son cast upon her stung her to the heart, making her for a moment feel as if she had sinned what the theologians call the unpardonable sin. When he rose and walked from the room without a word, she would feel as if abandoned to her wickedness, and be miserable until she saw him again. Something like a spring cleaning would begin and go on in her for some time after, and her eyes would every now and then steal toward her judge with a glance of awe and fearful apology. But, however correct Godfrey might be in his judgment of the worldly, that judgment was less inspired by the harmonies of the universe than by the discords that had jarred his being, and the poisonous shocks he had received in the encounter of the noble with the ignoble. There was yet in him a profound need of redemption into the love of the truth for the truth's sake. He had the fault of thinking too well of himself, which, who has not who thinks of himself at all, apart from his relation to the holy force of life, within, yet beyond him. It was the almost unconscious, assuredly the undetected, self-approbation of the ordinarily righteous man, the defect of whose righteousness makes him regard himself as upright, but the virtue of whose uprightness will at length disclose to his astonished view how immeasurably short of rectitude he comes. At the age of thirty, Godfrey Wardour had not yet become so displeased with himself as to turn self-roused energy upon betterment, and until then all growth must be of doubtful result. The point on which the self-revolving top of his thinking and feeling turned was as yet his present conscious self, as a thing that was and would be, not as a thing that had to become. Naturally the pivot had worn a socket, and such socket is sure to be a sore. His friends, notwithstanding, gave him credit for great imperturbability, but in such willfully undemonstrative men the evil burrows the more insidiously that it is masked by a constrained exterior. End of chapter 4